0: Hey friends, it's Angelica here, coming at you from my sunny apartment in LA. And I'm just grinning a little bit because Rachel just got back from visiting from the West Coast. She was actually in San Diego though, just a couple hours south of me, but she was loving it, loving the sun, loving the outdoor activities. And I'm just sitting here like, I know you would love it here. Um, and yeah, it's something that we joke about all the time. Cause of course I want her to be close and on the West coast and I know she would just love it. Um, but she is a true Midwest gal at heart. So I'll let her do her own thing for now, but we have been working on a lot at Sofa Veda community. I mean, it's something that we're always working on for sure, but we've been really focusing on how can we make our community and specifically our lightworkers society, more transformative, more powerful. And we've been really up leveling everything. So you're going to see some of that come into fruition in March. We've already been getting our workers pretty excited about it. And yeah, we're stoked about it too. It's going to be awesome. More time, FaceTimes with us, more community aspects to get to know everyone in this group because you learn so much from everyone's experiences um, and relating to everyone. And something else we are also focusing on community. Well, Kind of since we really began Soulful, we were like, wow, we feel like we're on this island practicing Ayurveda and no one knows what the hell we're doing. I mean, specifically in Chicago where we know the wellness industry, it's there in its own way, but not in the holistic realm, not in the Vedic science realm. So we wanted to start our own community and we started our own group of Ayurveda practitioners that now we meet monthly and oh we feel so special for everyone that's in the group. Actually, each person in their group, we all complete the human design archetype so it's so harmonious and it's great because you hear what everyone's doing you're like wow that's so inspiring and amazing how you are filtering through the lens of ayurveda through your own authentic gifts and what's also really cool is we can support each other so give each other advice on things and be able to guide where we want to take our business and rachel and i have really loved taking the leadership positions in this group and it caught us thinking wow, there is a lot of us out there just on our own islands and we need to come together. And we've been reaching out to some of you on Instagram and hearing that as well. So that is something we are also working on too is bringing this platform that we're creating and up-leveling it for healers so that you can also learn from each other so that you can have that support system and then you can constantly be learning new things. So that's something that Rachel and I love to do. It's both in our human design is to constantly be learning new things and what better way to do it in all the same place. So stay tuned and if you're interested, reach out to us and our DMs on Instagram and we're going to give you the first-hand knowledge and all that stuff. So today, oh my goodness, we are... Beyond blessed and honored that Laura Plum would grace us with her presence. And truly, you will know what I mean when you start to hear her talk. I mean, she is just such a force to be reckoned with. She's such a beautiful soul, and we felt so connected with her. I mean, right before we recorded this podcast, her and I were talking, and we both grew up in really similar suburbs of Chicago, which was so strange because now we're both on the west coast and in california and it was really cool to see the similarities we had we all have moon and scorpio rachel and i and laura and you're gonna hear all about that a lot in the episode because it is such a special um, relationship to have the moon and scorpio and, and what that really means for us and if you don't already know who laura plum is she is has her own company, Veda Weiss, which does Ayurvedic trainings and certification programs, and she has her own blog. She also has written her own book, Ayurvedic Cooking for Beginners. If you're a practitioner and don't have it on yourself, you need to get it immediately. And has also done television series talking about the Vedas um, and yoga, which is so amazing. I mean, she uses so many different modalities, writing on her blog, her Instagram page, at Laura Plum. There is so much out there. She is so divine, and we were so honored to have her on here. But also, just for her pure presence, which also when we were recording was so cool, there was this orb over her. It was so beautiful and luminescent, and like a rainbow over her eyes when she was speaking. It was, <laughs> it just felt exactly how the conversation was going, just really divine. There's no other way to say that. And we cover a lot in this episode, as you know how long it is, probably one of our longest yet. We talk a little bit about Laura's journey and how she really found the Vedas and how it found her at that perfect time and what that really meant for her when she started to just explore Ayurveda and then go into Jyotish and how she knew that was her calling. We talk about how it really relates to Ayurveda and going into the elements and how do those two connect together and why is it so pivotal to have this science of light, Vedic astrology in inner vessel and, and understanding it and using it for true transformation we also talk about where the planets are and have been in the past month all those planets that are in capricorn our lightworkers know we talked a lot about that a lot of us are feeling a lot of intensity and some of us may have not, and we talk about each of those experiences and how it's been filtered through different lenses and what you have been going through. And then we go into what are we coming up on in March? We have some exciting things, some exciting movements, and then what to look forward to for the rest of the year and really going into some of these concepts that are coming up in 2021 and how can we use the science of light Vedic astrology to transform and to grow into our fullest potential. A really interesting part of the conversation I love that we brought up is how we're still in the piscean age so a lot of tropical astrology will say we have entered the age of aquarius um and we talk about why that is and the difference between the two and i think it's still so beautiful that we're in this piscean age according to vedic astrology that follows sidereal and piscean age is the divine feminine it's this dream state into intuition and laura brings up such a good point there like I don't think we've learned the lesson that we're supposed to in the pisces age and i i could not agree more that resonated so much i you know we talk all about divine feminine energy so much in our work because we have that masculine energy we know that we've got that down pat and now it's really time to honor intuition and let those gifts flourish you know we've been preaching that for 2021 this is a year that everyone recognizes their unique gifts and totally steps into their power now that we flushed away and released so much last year. um, So yeah, we go into all of that. It's it's really enlightening and eye-opening. And before we get into it, I do want to bring up the difference between tropical astrology and Vedic astrology for our new listeners. So the difference between them, and there's no right or wrong here, is that tropical astrology follows more on seasonality. And so it's based more on our Western world. So I... I love my um, rising moon and sun, according to tropical astrology. And I talk about it a lot because I do live in this Western world and I do relate to those energies a lot. And I think it's also really been transformational for rachel and i to learn our vedic astrology charts too because for that it really speaks to our soul and really the truth of who we are and that's usually been the experience of all my friends and family members who have had their Vedic astrology charts read so scientifically and take this or leave it i know i'm not totally a science person but for some of us that need that more um tangibility of understanding it it is here for you so Vedic astrology based on sidereal, meaning if you were to open up that Skywalk app and be like, okay, where's the sun right now? The sun is in Pisces. You're like, okay, duh, that makes sense. Well, tropical astrology will say it's in Aquarius, right? Because it's based on seasonality. Now, here's where I'm going to get granular. Again, take it or leave it. So when we measure the sequential order of the signs, the Rashis, it starts with Aries, right? That's number one. And that starts sometime in March. And we call this the vernal equinox. So that is when the Earth completes its revolution and goes around the sun. And that's when they start measuring um, all the signs, where the signs start. And so it starts at that zero degrees and it moves 23 and a half degrees to get into each sign. Now, we have to take into consideration as that Earth makes that revolution around the sun, it has a natural wobble to it meaning it's not going to come to the same exact point at zero degrees every year. It's going to shift just a little bit because that earth has a little bit of a wobble. Well, the Vedas were, and the ancient Rishis who channeled Joychish were so intelligent and intuitive that they knew that the earth had this wobble. So they use a more an exact measurement called the Ayanamsha um to measure that exact point so it's just a little bit more accurate it's a little bit more mathematical and for this it can feel more like truth to others now we do want to preface in saying don't look up your vedic astrology chart without having a reader um that is the disclaimer because also how you understand the different signs which you talk about are different than they are in tropical than they are in vedic astrology they're just kind of slightly different and so If you were to look up your chart and be like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm not X, Y, and Z, and I'm this, it can be not transformative and not evolutionary, which is what Vedic Astrology's main purpose is. So try not to do that if you don't have your chart read yet. However, if you do have have your chart up um, or if you've gotten reading, then I would recommend putting your chart up and looking at it. So you can just use it as reference um, because we talk a lot about the planetary dispositions throughout. And if you have not had your chart reading, but you're so interested, then we recommend um, signing up with a session with Laura. You can find um, more information uh, at Laura plum. i'm sorry lauraplum.com and we'll link all that into the show notes so you can get to know her work. And one more thing before we get started. So we had this beautiful meditation just Laura and I before we connected because we were channeling such ancient wisdom and we always want to honor the lineage. So It brought us into this deep state of receptivity. And I would love all of our listeners to have that moment as well. So if you have a moment to just pause and if you're not in a place to do a meditation, then you can just pause this and save it for later. Um, But just get into a comfortable seat. Find a moment of stillness and close your eyes. And just start to connect to your breath. Take a deep inhale. Visualize white light coming from your roots all the way up to the crown of your head and then an open mouth exhale release and two more deep breaths just like this visualize white light from the root all the way to the crown And then pull your awareness to your heart center and feel this love and energy and compassion opening us up to the gift of the Vedic knowledge of Ayurveda of joytish. Thanking the ancient Rishis for passing down and channeling this wisdom, honoring the traditions from where they came and just start to visualize the auric field around your heart for a couple of moments and stay into the state of expansiveness and receptivity. And take a deep inhale. And an open mouth exhale. And when you feel ready, come back into the space, get cozy, grab a cup of tea, and please enjoy this episode. Welcome to Soulful Veda's podcast. We are Ayurvedic health coaches that heal and balances in the mind, body, and spirit. We are here to guide you on your healing journey with soulful wisdom and higher intuition. You are your best healer and your moment to connect your highest self is now. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Soulful Veda show. Um, It's Angelica here today, and we are so, so honored and excited um, to have our guest, Laura Plum, here on the podcast today, sharing her wisdom on Vedic astrology, something that we're both so passionate about. So thank you so much for being here. We are so excited to start this conversation.
1: Thank you. It's an honor to be with you guys.
0: So we like to cut all corners and strut, um, cut straight to the truth and we'd love to hear what started your whole spiritual awakening or spiritual journey, if you will.
1: Corners, too many corners in my life. I wanted to go <laughs>
0: straight to the truth.
1: <laughs> it's true when i was younger i used to always draw circles and hearts and round things and i remember being in my 20s and saying to a friend why is everything built with squares and angles why isn't everything built with roundness and edges like they did in the in the adobe homes and in the hopi indian and the native and indigenous people and the way that they built you know why is everything of edges um because i think i always had this vision of the world of this experience of the world that it, there was something so softer to it than the hardness that I felt pushed into almost like I was a a circle being pushed into a square peg and I think that's really it I mean I'm we're having fun with it but I think there's really the truth to that um I had a lot of loneliness and some trauma when I was younger uh some trauma that led to loneliness because I felt alone with it and I don't think I knew that I had traumatic experiences till I was older and people start talking about their own traumatic experiences. Um, I think I just had these experiences and tried to get on with life. But more and more of those experiences isolated me because I didn't share them with others, and I felt different, therefore. And I felt, I felt something. I, I wouldn't say I felt broken, and I wouldn't say I felt different or odd. I just felt a disconnect from the wholeness of life and the world. And so I just began to be curious. I started to go to bookstores and wander down that aisle with uh, books by Thich Nhat Hanh or Jon Kabat-Zinn or, you know, various people who were writing about wholehearted living, let's say. Um, I was living in London in my 20s and I and I was reading books by Thich Han, and then he came to London, and then I, then the Dalai Lama came to London, and then Mother Teresa came to London, and I got to just meet, go and visit them, and listen to them, and stand and really close to them, and even say hello to them. And beautiful, extraordinary experiences. So, you know, I was really lit up. I was lit up by the people, their presence, their teachings, and wisdom. And I just kept going deeper and deeper into it. I'd also say that from an early age, from an early age, I grew up in nature you know, we talked about where we're both from. I grew up very close to the shores of Lake Michigan. I went there every day in the summer. I went there in the winter. I went there in the autumn. I went there in the spring. I always feel like Lake Michigan was my second mother. Like she helped raise me. I learned so much. I was soothed so much. I was embraced and and supported, I felt, by being on the lake, being by the water. and um, And by reading a book called Black Elk Speaks and learning how, First Nation people lived and lived closer to nature and according to the rhythms of nature. And I sort of just longed for that. I just had a longing. I mean, I I was raised to grow up and be a lawyer or something, you know, and to to do that, to do life that way, and it just didn't fit for me. So I've I've had a I've had a very blessed life. This is not a complaint, but I was stumbling in the dark, fumbling in the dark, let's say, for years before finally I fumbled into bumped into, stumbled into Ayurveda, which suddenly felt like the real, the comprehensive totality or wholeness of everything that I had been exploring. It was there in Ayurveda. And from Ayurveda, I learned about Jyotish. And uh, once I learned about Jyotish, I was off and running. I just couldn't, I couldn't be stopped. <laughs> but I was reading my Geotish books in the corner with the door closed so nobody would see me because I was so completely afraid that everyone would think I've completely lost the plot. (laughs) But having said that, I want to, I want to really have this caveat. I knew that I had found truth. I knew that I had found something that was like shaking the skies to see what fruit would fall. Right. I mean, I knew that something extraordinary was there. I'll never forget. Even first, I read the autobiography of a yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda, but then I listened to it and I listened to it in the car. I was driving a lot in those days, back and forth. I had to go once a week somewhere, it's two, three hours away. So I would listened to that and I'll never forget one time getting out of the car after listening for two hours and I was like jumping up and down. I thought to myself, this is pure genius. It's just genius. The Vedic understanding of the world, of life, the matrix of it all, the intelligence, secret codes, the underlying codes of fundamental laws, I mean, it's just, it's so exciting. You just can't help yourself, but just want to dance <laughs> to discover it. You know, it is. And then life is just one long dance until we <laughs> dance ourselves off into the eternal. <laughs> yeah.
0: I love so. that. That. It's so thank you for sharing. It's so beautiful to see when you make those connections of where you were as a child and how you wanted that connection with nature, and that was really you could say is like your first introduction to Ayurveda, right? It's connecting with the elements, and specifically wanting to be close to that that body of water, that that nurturing sense. How that was always guiding you, and we're always guided back in that certain realm so that we can expand, so that we can evolve to the next stage of our life.
1: I just feel like there's a a longing for the reunification with nature. We all have a longing for that. But I also had a longing for community mm. that, that was embodying this wisdom that I saw in Black Elk's book in First Nations people um, that we've lost. Colonized people, colonizing people, uh, that was deliberately lost. And uh, so the beauty of Ayurveda is that we're reclaiming the, the power of living in connection with nature that we all long for. It reminds us, you know, we have a longing to belong. And Ayurveda reminds us that we do belong. We belong to life. We belong to nature. We belong to this beautiful, bountiful, mighty, and majestic world. And there's nothing more soothing, right, than to just know that. To me, that's the great healing.
0: Totally. That was so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> yeah. And it's so harmonious how Jotish and Ayurveda are so interwoven together. And I totally agree that like excitement and burst of inner knowing that even though everyone else who might look at what I'm studying right now in my books, I would have my books in my book or in my room, might think I'm crazy. There's just that inner knowing within you that you can't deny anymore and that you, that thirst to just know more about yourself because once you start to understand everything through these elements and through nature then your whole life starts to unfold and I would love to hear where did Jyotish start to shed light in your world what started to open up
1: well with that there's a pretty clear event you know when I first had my you know the first Jyotish reading mm-hmm. um so I was living in London through my you know I would say mid-20s so in Europe, and then around 27, I went to London, and I was there until for almost a decade. And in you know, they're, they're a little bit more, I would say, holistic or integrated. At least my experience was. I lived in a really cool place off Covent Garden, very close to Neil's Yard. And Neil's Yard, for anyone who knows London, is a place that had essential oils and a little cafe where you could get stews and soups and maybe even kitchere. At the time, mm. I'm not sure I would have known it was Kitchery. Um, you could go in for acupuncture. They would do classes and workshops. It was all a very healing sort of center, done in a very cool and funky way. And I lived close by, so I was there almost every day. I would go for a coffee in the morning or a tea in the afternoon, or get a bite to eat or get some essential oils or some herbs. Um, and they just—it just felt like that was there's an unbroken tradition in Europe in an European culture of connecting back to their herbal ways and not necessarily Ayurveda ways, but it is there. And, and so I, I knew an astrologer, actually a woman named Lynn Bell, who's one of the top astrologers in Europe. She's actually an American woman. She lives in Paris, but I just got to know her and had some sessions with her. And so, you know, I was curious about astrology. I was curious about how the stars and the planets could affect us. And, then i moved back to the states and i met someone named jeffrey armstrong who was a great vedic philosopher and teacher and scholar and also a jyotish master and he gave me my first reading which was lucky it's lucky if wow. your first reading is with somebody who's not just that advanced but who's that loving in the way that he does it and uh You know, at that moment I felt, oh, here I am, a circle who has been trying to fit myself into a square peg. Because I don't feel like my birthday is December 24th, which in Western astrology, tropical astrology is considered Capricorn and Sagittarius moon. And that just did not describe me. Suddenly now, according to George's Sagittarius sun is what I am and Scorpio moon. It just made sense. All of a sudden, I didn't feel like a bad Capricorn anymore. <laughs> it's now suddenly, I've, I understood why I feel more expansive, more go with the flow, more always, you know, I lived in London, and I often forgot my umbrella because, you know, Sagittarius just always thinks the sun's going to come out, even in London. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> if I were a Capricorn, I would have been better prepared, always better prepared. <laughs> So as an example. So yeah, it was very much that one event and I just felt like such an exhale. Uh, and then and then so much, and then the, the incorporation, the integration of the devatas, the understanding of the planets as devas and devic beings, that we live in a wor- world that is radiant with light and intelligence and, and that power and and that we can access that. These planets want to work through us to come here and bring their light, intelligence, and energy to the world. And that we get to be, in a way, a servant to that, a divine servant to that, to Jupiter or to the moon or to Venus or to some beauty and to some magic. Yeah, it was really, I mean, I was just so lit up. I, I like you. At that point, it was like every book. I was, you know, we didn't have Amazon, I don't think, in those days. But in those days, you know, I was, anytime I was at a bookstore, I was i was coming out with a handful of new Vedic astrology books or Jyotish books
0: yeah it's so profound when a healer can really just speak to your soul and just say wow i feel so seen and heard right now and it it's just that ultimate love and compassion which is what i the vedas are what ayurveda and joy is and when you can really open yourself and connect on that level and that level of truth that's when everything expands and i i love that you're moon in scorpio because i'm moon in scorpio and so is rachel too so i totally oh my gosh that's amazing
1: i understand we love
0: each other yeah so so much like yeah i can and i can feel that too it's very funny i i'm sure you've kind of come to understand too you can feel that energy of not just the sign but kind of like the elements coming through in that other person and that i feel with moon and scorpio one of my favorite ways that my teacher described it was people can paint with their emotions right but moon and scorpio can paint with like 25 different colors and like normal signs can paint with like five different colors. And I, and I love that explanation because it expressed like how deep my emotions are and like the spectrum of it. And again, it it just brought that, that compassion and love for myself and having these emotions that I had that I might've thought were like wild or not accepted now had a place.
1: Gosh, that's gorgeous. That's really beautiful what you're saying. And I, and I, if I may, I'll borrow that because uh, I think that that idea of the spectrum, but also that oftentimes we can't put words to what we're feeling, yeah. but maybe we could paint it. The yeah. Scorpio moon person feels so deeply. Maybe we feel things that there isn't even a word for. I mean, yeah. I have found that in my life. It's like often difficult or I need to wait a day or a few days to be able to communicate what I may be feeling. Um, and yeah, Scorpio moon people are very deep. Deep feelers, <laughs> deep emotional experience. And I think here here with a big mission to mm. to help transmute emotional energy from from the negative to the to the positive and the powerful. Very intuitive people as well. Lots totally. of empathy and empathic, almost a psychic. Yeah, that's beautiful. So and that's the other thing that we may share with others is that there's a word in Jewish which isn't the correct translation from Sanskrit, but into English it became debilitated. So we're considered to have a debilitated moon. But the reason I think that's not fair to use that word is that once upon a time, Jyotish was mostly done for the royal court, the king, the queen, the prince, the princess. And so they wanted their child just to have an easy life. Nowadays, if you're a bodhisattva or if you're somebody coming to be in the world today, if you want to be a healer or a teacher, It's helpful to have a water moon. And a moon in Scorpio is a person who's here to help others hold those emotions, transmute or transform those emotions, to feel the world and to feel what other people are feeling because the world needs people who who can meet them at the emotional nature, at the emotional level. That takes courage. And Scorpios have that courage. And so, you know, it's a gift, actually. I think it's a gift. But we have to sometimes... Reinterpret the scripture. Yes, because it was written. The the Jyotish scriptures were written for medieval times, and they were talking about what would be ideal if you were the prince, (laughs) or what would you want for your princess daughter. Yeah, they want Jupiter exalted. They want Venus exalted. (laughs) They want everything easy in the eleventh house. Right, but not all of us have come alive for it to be easy. We've come alive to be of service, or we've come alive for moksha. And that's going to take some challenge, but that's going to take, but we came alive for that, and we've got the capacities to meet those challenges. That's what I love so much about Jyotas is that you get to see, and and that's why I said Jeffrey was such a great first teacher for me, because he sees everything in an enlightened way. He sees everything in an illuminated way, that our our Atma has made these choices in this lifetime. And I love how Jyotas helps you see the choices that your Atma made, Right, the Atma being that part of yourself that is the invisible, indivis- indivisible, right, immortal, eternal self.
0: And so, I think it's so helpful. We can say, "Well, I had to go through that." I love that you brought up the scriptures and and being sometimes mistranslated. Because I actually had that thought the other day. I, I grew up Catholic, and I, you know, I think that our translation of the Bible is just skewed. Like I think we're missing the mark on a lot of things here. And I was mm-hmm. thinking, well. We also have ancient texts like the Taraka, Taraka Samhita and, you know, in Jyotish and Ayurveda. And so are we missing the mark in certain pieces of this too? Like where can we see this from the whole perspective that's more inclusive in all these ways? And that to me gave me more personal power that I can really of course, honor this lineage and honor this wisdom so much, but also look at it from that intuitive standpoint and know that I also have this knowledge within me and how I, it gave me more freedom, like more sovereignty to just really own how this wisdom is coming through me and less relying on the kind of masculine energy of structuring it and having to put it into boxes. And if your Jupiter's, you know, debilitated, then you're wrong for life, you know, and I certainly think that like with astrology, that can go in either other way too. And what I found with Joy Tish is that, f- that freedom of whatever your chart is, is beautiful. And it's just a matter of working and balancing with these elements within you and that you have that free will to kind of do what you will mm-hmm. with the chart.
1: Right. And free will is always there. Mm-hmm. And I love, I love that. I love what you're saying. Your chart. And, and I think of all the Vedic sciences, that's an important thing that you just brought up that the Vedic sciences are here to help us be better human beings, to have a more fulfilled life. just really helps us know our soul's calling, our soul's unfolding, our soul's direction, our soul's choices. So it helps us align with the soul. So we're not working against ourselves, so to speak. We're not swimming upriver; we're rather flowing with it. Right. And so I always say to people when I'm teaching that the Vedic sciences are sacred sciences. So never use them profanely, which means never use them against yourself. Like it is never okay for you to say, oh, I'm bad. I'm so vata. (laughs) You know, we can't use the doshas to say, oh, I'm terrible. I'm so pitta. No. These are just ways to understand your energies and your balances and to say lovingly to yourself, darling, I love you. You're perfect in your essence. And right now, today, we're a little imbalanced. What's the application of opposites? That will help us restore balance yes right same with yotish yes when you look at your chart you you know I mean I'll have people who before the session they've looked at their chart and they're like oh oh and so and they're quit you know looking at the wrong thing they're looking at moon and six and six means the sign but now they think it's the house so they think it means something and <laughs> so that first of all they it's it's misguided. Don't please don't Google your chart, everybody. <laughs> it's just not. It's just not helpful. But also, you know, also because what you learn in first year Jyotish, all the laws and rules you learn in Jyotish 101, in Jyotish 201 or 202, you learn that they're all the 85% of them get broken, right? Mm-hmm. 85% of de- debilitated wow. planets are not debilitated. They're that, there's what we call Nichabanga, which cancels the debilitation. Eighty-five percent. So first, you have to learn about debilitation. Next year, you learn. Oh, yeah, but eighty percent of the time, that doesn't that doesn't apply, <laughs> right?
0: I love so. that. I. Yeah, I'm only in my I just completed my Jyotish one. So, th- yes, that's probably why I'm also feeling this because it's like structure and in these boxes and I know with any learnings I've had, not even just the Vedic studies that it always expands more from there and there's always these exceptions to the rules and because you have to understand it from that holistic perspective. And I love that you were talking about mm-hmm. it's all about balancing the opposites and our listeners know really well of how to bring the elements into balance with Ayurveda. So, how do you bring in the elements to balance in dr- Joy-ish.
1: Right. And so just to really emphasize for your listeners that we never want to use the Vedic sciences, never use them in vain, never mm. use them in a profane way. Remember, they're sacred sciences. They should be treated as such, but they're also there to remember that you are sacred, right? And so you have to treat yourself as such. And, you know, I, would, I think that one of the things Ayurveda and you just really help us with is, something that I was writing about recently, I don't feel that I belong to this body or that I own this body rather that I was temporarily loaned this body. And it's like a plane, my body, I feel like it's like a plane, which is kind of a fun idea. And I'm learning to fly a plane. Right. And when I really learn to fly, I'm going to be able to fly on the plane, you know, And, and wow, spread the wings and, and soar. But it's cool because just as with planes nowadays, they're constantly upgrading the computer, the technology, I have a friend who literally does fly planes. And every other year she goes and spends a month somewhere to learn the new upgrades, right? And I feel like that's true. We're always sort of learning our instrumentation. Right. We're learning what this vehicle can do for us. And that's exciting. If we think of it that way, we can think, oh my gosh, thank you for being a plane and for flying me places. I sometimes get to go all the way to India in this plane. Wow. You know? And so I think if we look at it that way. A little bit of separation, not that anything is separate, we're all one, but that sense of a little bit of once removed gives us maybe a better capacity to appreciate what we've been given, you know. And then, okay, how can I improve? I need to oil the cogs, right, so the wheels will run more smoothly, right? I need to do these certain things, to, I need to give it a clean, I need to polish it up. We have to just take care of it so that we can, as an Atma, truly fly. Um, But to your question, so uh, Ayurveda is the science, right, of the application of opposites. So when we know the element, we know the qualities of the elements. Today I feel spacey. I feel overly vast and ungrounded, right? Or today I feel earth and I feel too heavy and stagnant. Then we can think, okay, I just need to apply the opposite. With Jupiter, it's a little different, as you probably know. Let's just say you had an issue with your moon. Maybe there's a Saturn transit to your moon. We're all going to have that at some point in our life, a couple times. So Saturn transiting the moon, we would say, how can we protect the moon from Saturn's influence? Saturn's influence is debilitating or depleting. He acts like Vayu or Vata. Um, Saturn is really an emissary of Shiva. He's kind of comes to remind us that we are pure consciousness. And so he helps us not get overly attached to things. And yogis all know that we shouldn't get too overly attached to things. But even the greatest yogi will sometimes grow accustomed to a relationship, a job or a a, a way of being, teaching. People who teach often love to teach. It's very fulfilling to teach. So we may become accustomed to these things. We may think that my whole life is about Seva. I'm going to give selfless service to the world. And then I'm doing this selfless service and I really feel good about it. If Saturn's going to do his job, he's got to take away the thing you've grown most accustomed to. That's just, I'm, I'm sorry, but that's how it works. So if you don't love it, if you didn't enjoy it, then I mean if you just have an extra pen and you lost your pen, you just it doesn't matter, right? But if a relationship went south or you lose your job or you love teaching, but for some reason you can't teach anymore, something like that. This is an example of how Shiva helps us remember that we are consciousness and we're having a transitory experience, drive flying a plane, right, for this period of time, for this life. And so but when, when Saturn crosses the moon, he's helping, I think he's helping us rearrange the way we perceive the world, the way we use the instrumentation of our five senses, and how do we interp- interpret the, the sensory input, how do we process that, how do we respond to what we're experiencing in the world, how, how does that make us think or feel, right, or just respond generally. Saturn comes along to help us rearrange that. And the more that we're a yogi, the more that we are practiced in non-attachment, the more that we'll be able able to ride those waves with some equanimity. Uh, But just because it happens doesn't mean we're either a good or bad person. And that's what's really important to remember. And that's why it's so helpful, I think, with Jyotish. It's upayas, upaya meaning effort. The upayas are remedies. And the remedies, you know, in Jyotish, many people are familiar with remedies being gems, jewels, gemstones, are, are good remedies. Um, seva selfless service is another good remedy yoga practice can be a good remedy but the most powerful remedies are mantras and you know because mantra does rearrange the brain rearranges the synaptic patterns it rearranges the rivers you could say of the landscape of our mind and redirects them so that the rivers are directed towards the ocean and not um not towards some polluted lake or something, you know? So as an example, just to finish on that, you could give yourself a mantra to protect the moon. It could be just a mantra to the moon, using the planetary name of the moon, Om Reem Samayana maha If you are a more experienced or advanced practitioner, you could learn the Hanuman Chalisa, Because the Hanuman Chalisa is basically a mantra that says, I know in my heart who I am. I am the Natma. And so Saturn can't hurt me. Even if Saturn takes everything away, I'm still strong in the essence of who I am. And that's really what the Hanuman Chalisa is about. Hanuman Chalisa as Krishna says, why do we sing the Hanuman Chalisa? Somebody asked him that, and just to finish on this. And he said, Oh, well, we sing the Hanuman Chalisa to to worship Hanuman, to give you know praise to Hanuman. And this man, this was in an Indian in Haridwar, this man who had asked him the question said, You think Hanuman needs you to praise him? You think Hanuman needs you to worship him? (laughs) No, we chant to Hanuman because Hanuman was a monkey. And when he was a child, he was born with these great powers. And he saw the Brahmins, the priests, in the morning doing the Gayatri Mantra, saying, yay to the sun. We love you, sun. Make us more like you. Make us more like your light. Fill us with your light. So he thought, well, there must be something good about the sun. And he was a child. He said, it must be tasty or delicious. It must be like candy. So he jumps in the sky and (laughs) takes the sun and runs away with it. And so the Brahmins were upset and they cursed Hanuman. And basically their curse was quite gentle. They cursed him to forget the powers that he has, to forget who he is. And only later does he he remember and resurface his powers once he finds and meets Ram, his great lord, his his great master. And it's through that devotion, through the devotion of, of offering ourselves wholeheartedly to the great divine one, that we too come into those great same powers. So the Hanuman Chalisa is beautiful, even just Sri Ram Jai Ram Jai Hanuman, but just to remember that in our connection to the creative power that is the source of all existence, that power moves through us. We're reunited, and that reunification with nature, right? We are made whole again. And uh, and there's great power in that. And in that place, Saturn can't hurt us.
0: Ah, Thank you for sharing such a beautiful story. And that's so harmonious with what you're talking about with when I first started to learn devotions and chanting, I had the adversity, again, coming from my Catholic background because I thought I was just purely devoting and I didn't know why mindlessly to another god or goddess. And that's was didn't feel authentic to me. And that's the perfect story to really reconnect to the why behind it. And it's because we are embodiments of these gods and goddesses and that we are just remembering who we are by chanting that we are just invoking that energy within us so that we can become that energy because we are that energy it's just that remembering it's that activation within and that's what the that's what Vedic astrology does is it reignites what you already know and it's that remembering and I think we can both agree, like when you start to first learn Ayurveda and Vedic astrology, it hits you so much and it like strikes your soul because you you feel it so deeply. It's that inner calling of what you've already known. So I think that's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing all of that.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, any, and I say that, I used to say it when I was teaching yoga, it's a practice of sacred remembrance. Ayurveda is a practice of sacred remembrance. Jyotas is a practice of sacred remembrance. You know, with yoga, we're remembering our eternal self, hopefully. With Ayurveda, we're remembering our mortal self, but the wisdom that is in, in our natural, our nature being, our nature body. Um, I, in either way, whether we're remembering the creative power or the creation itself, we're remembering something very, very sacred. Again, it goes back to what we were first talking about, something that I think we do long to remember and to belong to once again.
0: Totally. And yeah. connecting back with nature too. And part of why I love Vedic astrology is because it does focus more so on connecting with the planets because we are supposed to be closer with nature. And that's why we do work more with the planets versus in Western astrology, it focuses heavily on the signs. Um, so I would love for you to go and give our listeners what are what do these planets mean and where do they come from? Because I think we have maybe a Western view of what these signs are, but the signs come from the planets. And I think that deeper understanding of nature and the yeah, planet really yeah, helps us yeah. to connect deeper with it.
1: Right. Absolutely. You're so right. And I, I'm glad you said that because I think that has to be stressed and emphasized. People need to understand that. If somebody said to you at a Geotish conference, <laughs> Hey, what's your sign? <laughs> the only sign they would be referring to is your Lagna, your rising sign. Because mm-hmm. then they're just for, for two reasons. One, because that's the only thing we would be saying, what is the sign? But the second reason is because they may be asking, you know, what am I seeing here? <laughs> right? <laughs> because your rising sign, your lagna is your or speaks to your property, speaks to your mind body constitution. But other than that, we're really talking about planets. When we look at somebody's chart, we're looking at the planets and are the planets strong? Do the planets need a little bit of a boost? And what is the relationship of the planets one to the other? So we're really looking at this matrix of light, energy, and intelligence that is created by the relationships of the planets where they were in time and space at the exact moment of your birth, viewed from the place where you were born. And, you know, it's pretty exciting to think that you are the coming alive of that matrix of light, energy, and and intelligence. And I think the more that we remember that, the more we are brought into a mindset, Reminded again of the sacredness of you. What could be wrong with you are the stars and planets come alive? Wow. Go out at night and look at that and then say, Wow, that's me. I just I just brought that alive. It's pretty, it's really cool. And when people first look at their chart, I'll often say, This is the yantra of you. This is the Sri Yantra of you. When I look at a chart, I feel like I'm looking at a diamond and, you look at it different ways, and it reflects different light and different, just like a diamond. Oh, turn it this way; whole new reflection of light. Yeah, it's amazing. So, the planets—I think the best way and the easiest way to remember them in terms of what their meaning is—that the sun is the king, the moon is the queen, Mercury is their son; he's the prince, right? Uh, Mars is the soldier. Some people will say he's a general, but he's not the general. That's something that's important to remember. In ancient times, the king was a general. The king decided when we would ride out, right? We needed to go protect our kingdom, or we needed to go and, you know, whatever it was that we needed to do. The king is the general. The sun is the light of consciousness at your heart, and that always has to be the guiding intelligence. Mars gets to go into action once the sun, the king, has made the decision and made the call. And so you'll see that if somebody has a, a, a less strong sun, a very strong Mars, but the sun is not so strong. And they'll often tell me that it's true that earlier in life, they would just like run into action, 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 go, go, go. And it took lots of time over the course of their life to learn to stop and wait for the heart Wait for the inner intelligence, Mm. what you might call the soul, the inner animating spirit. Wait for a whole body in every aspect, all your sub-personalities to agree and then make the call. So think about Mars as the soldier. Mars represents energy, action, willpower, but it has to serve the higher uh, call. So we have sun, Sun is king, moon is queen, Mercury is a prince, Mars is the soldier. Saturn is the farmer. Saturn is everyone else who you know, lives outside of the ca- castle, the palace. I love to think of Saturn as a farmer because we need our farmers. We love our farmers. And Saturn is like a farmer who plants in the spring, harvests in the fall. Saturn teaches us patience, hard work, and delayed rewards. But Saturn also teaches us all the gifts that anyone would learn if they lived day in and day out. Close to nature in that way. So Saturn teaches self-reliance, reliability, integrity, honesty, all of that. And then the two, the two ministers, the two advisors to the court are Venus, who is the ambassador or the minister of finance, the minister of arts. You know, Venus is the minister of all that is could be held in our hands. Let's say. And then Jupiter is the minister of all that cannot be held in our hands, the invisible and the intangible. Jupiter is the guru. Jupiter is the spiritual guide and advisor to the courts. And in ancient times, uh, the, the king would not make a decision, would not take an action without first consulting the spiritual advisor, the guru, because it's that the guru who has the big picture, who sees the whole and always wants to advise in terms of what's best for all beings, not just what's best for the kingdom. So, you know, in in ancient times there was that idea that we would make decisions, a politician would make decisions based on what's most harmonious for all beings everywhere. So the spiritual advisor to the court had a very important job. He wasn't secondary to the king. He He or she was very they're exalted in, in their responsibilities and they're important. So I hope that's helpful. Is that helpful to kind of understand what they stand for, what they mean?
0: Yes. Thank you so much for going so deep into each of them. And I think it would also help for our listeners for us to go through which signs are associated with each of the planets. So now that they kind of get to know a taste of how they feel with these planets since you may know from what your signs are which one is related to that planet, and also knowing we won't go into this today, but the signs in, in Vedic astrology do mean something just slightly different um, than they do in their Western astrology. Um, so just taking that into account.
1: Mm-hmm. That, right. That's so important. So all of the all of the signs have a planetary ruler. Each planet gets to rule a sign. Most planets rule two signs, except for the Sun. And the moon, the king and the queen each have one. The sun rules Leo. The sun is the ruler of the sign Leo, the constellation. And think of signs; they are stars, right? Versus planets, which are bodies. They actually have you know physical presence. Star is fire, right? So the the star, the constellation of stars ruled by the sun, is Leo. The constellation of stars, the sign that is ruled by moon or the queen, of course, is Cancer. And just there, you know that Leo, therefore, is going to shine. Leo is going to be sunny. Leo is going to be idealistic. Leo is going to be like a king. There's going to be a royal quality to a Leo. They have dignity, and they like to be. Now, oftentimes with a Leo, they might have, like, I don't know, a purse or some bag that has a brand to it. Or there's something about them that commands respect. Mm. And whether it's you know a brand name or whether it's the way they just hold themselves, uh, they have they command respect. So, and also Leo, of course, is the lion, and he's the king of the jungle. So they can be very paternal. They can be uh, upstanding. They can be the judge. They like they like discipline and rigor because the sun is like that. The sun gets up every day and gets to it, right? So Leo likes that. They like guidance. They like leadership, and they like to shine, and they're good at it. They're they have Because they're the sun, they have good clarity. I won't go into all this detail with everyone, but just to give you a sample, they have good clarity of vision. The sun gives us the light by which we are able to see every day. And so Leos have vision. Because they have vision, they're great storytellers. They have all the spectrum of light to tell the story in a colorful way. That may, that can make them good entertainers as well. But they're good leaders because they do have that good vision. They they can really unite people around a mission, and they can see exactly where we're going. So that's an example of how the planet will tell you a lot about the sun. Moon rules Cancer. So cancers are more mothering, they're more nourishing, they like to feed, they like to make people feel good, emotionally and physically, they like to take care, right? Well, a little bit of royalty there too, she's the queen, so she's got a little bit of, you know, tall spine, (laughs) dignity to the cancer. And then, then every other planet gets to rule two signs. One sign is a masculine sign, and the other sign will be a feminine sign. And again, that's going to tell us something. To give you an example of Jupiter, Jupiter rules Sagittarius, and Jupiter rules Pisces. And Sagittarius is said to be, you know, it expresses Jupiter as the guru. So Sagittarius is a philosopher, right? They may be interested in religion or philosophy or world traditions, wisdom traditions, different cultures. They love to learn. They're lifelong learners. They love to ask the great questions of why am I here? What is my purpose? How do we all live together in a way that's better and more sustainable? So they're the big picture. Jupiter is a big outer planet, right? He's very expansive, gaseous planet. So Sagittarius has a big heart. They're big hearted. They're generous. They're big minded. They're broad minded. They think in in patterns and, and, and big terms. And they love to run and feel the wind in their hair. I think of Jupiter as truth and freedom and the freedom that comes from right alignment. And so Sagittarius is that way. But Sagittarius is that more masculine, a little bit more rigid, a little bit more rigor, follows the scripture or follows the law a little bit more, um, likes things to have its place and its purpose, and, um, and, is, and is fairly idealistic. With Pisces, you get the beautiful qualities of Jupiter. In Pisces, it's the sense of oneness, the sense that we all belong to this one family. Right? This is the now feminine expression. So Pisces is more touchy feely. You're gonna I always think of my Pisces friends as the one who's gonna curl up and put her head on my shoulder, or she's gonna, you know, slide up to me and sort of put an arm around me. We're gonna talk, we're gonna talk about how we're feeling, we're gonna talk about poetry, we're gonna talk about music. It's gonna be a very uplifting conversation, very connected, very loving, very sweet. Because now, you know, the feminine represents the embodiment, right? The masculine represents the ideals or the mental or the intellectual. And then the feminine, it's more embodied. So now you've got the Pisces who want to heal people. They want to help restore wholeness. They want to help people feel whole. So a lot of people I see with sun or moon in Pisces do work in the medical field, integrative field. But they can also be musicians. I mean, in some way or another, your Pisces friend is the one who represents wholeness and compassion. Also aspects of Jupiter, but aspects that are more Tangible in the sense of emotional or connecting or embodied, let's say. And so, you know, just to go around, Mercury is uh, gets to express itself through the masculine air sign of Gemini and the feminine earth sign of Virgo. So you can you can already guess, right, what that feels like. What I like to remind people is that we love Mercury in Jyotish. We think of Mercury as giving us the powers of discernment. So when we look at Gemini. We don't see a dualistic, fast talking person, like a snake oil salesman. Somebody even came to me the other day and she could see that her son or her moon was in Gemini. And she said, Oh no, you know, oh no, because she'd heard these things about Gemini from the West. I thought, no, no, we don't all see that. When you think of Mercury, I mean, I think of a Gemini as somebody who's academic, a lifelong learner, somebody who's got a great capacity to learn all kinds of concepts. They're the butterfly who goes from flower to flower, pollinating in our world, with inspiration, ideas, and innovation. I mean, they're, I, all of my Gemini friends, if they say, let's do something, I'll say, great, what should we do? <laughs> they, I always let them decide because they always know the new vegan restaurant that's opened or the new art ex- exhibition. And every time I'm with my Gemini friends, I come back feeling so inspired. My mind is so opened by the creative ideas I've been exposed to. So that's the thing about Jyotas. We we're not looking at, at the negative. We're looking at the power of possibility. Geminis are great academics because they can also share what they're learning in playful, bite-sized, accessible ways. So that's Mercury. Mercury is, and then Virgo, just again to give that example, Virgo will take what they're learning and they'll turn it into something. So the Virgo, if you're sick, will bring you Kitchari. The Virgo will take what they're learning about herbal medicine instead of teaching or writing a book about it. They'll make herbal tonics. They'll have that jar of some kind of herbs that you should buy or you should that they will give you, that they will make for you. So it's more tangible, right? It's more handcrafted. It's more hands-on. They might learn a massage or an acupuncture treatment so they can actually treat you with their hands uh, rather than the intellectual piece of it. Venus rules Libra, masculine air sign, and Taurus, feminine earth sign. Saturn rules Capricorn, feminine, interestingly enough, feminine air, sorry, feminine earth sign. But because Saturn is so air, that gives Capricorn some air too, as well as that Earth. Which is a little confusing there, I think, with Georges on these signs and their elements. Because the planet that rules gets to say, right? You said earlier Scorpio Moon. I'll come to that in a second, but Capricorn, for instance, is an Earth sign. So we might think it's Kapha, but it's ruled by Saturn and air planets. It's got some air to it. And then Saturn also rules Aquarius, which is the most air sign because it's ruled by Saturn. It's air and it's, um, it's a masculine sign. And then finally, Mars rules Aries, masculine, fire, and Scorpio, feminine, water. And Scorpio is a great example of one of the signs that's got that duality. Because its ruler is fire, but its element is water. Right. Right? Whereas cancer is just water, water. <laughs> well, right. Well, there's a little bit more to that as well. But Pisces or Scorpio is very much fire and water. So there you go. If you understand the element, you understand the gender, <laughs> you understand the planetary ruler, you know the sign.
0: Thank you. That is so beautiful to break down and so helpful. And I love that bringing it back to there's always that masculine and feminine energy within. And really, you have all of these, just like in Ayurveda, how you have all the doshas within you. The same thing goes in Vedic astrology. You have all of these signs somewhere in another in your chart. Because I remember when I was first learning, I had heard something in Western astrology that said, well, if you don't have a sign in a house, that means it's a weaker house. And as soon as I said that to my teacher, he was like, "Okay, nix that immediately. It's not true. You have, a, you have all the signs, and it's just a matter of where you have that in your chart and how you can have it come alive. Like it's so helpful. If you, if anyone is listening to this, I encourage you to listen to this with your chart so you can see." For example, when you're going so deeply into Leo, I can really connect that my Venus and Jupiter's in Leo. So this is where I do come on stage in my more in my career and my service to others and then all in my relationships. And I can see that energy being portrayed through that lens. And as you go through each yeah. of those, you can see right. <laughs> where each of those start to come through. It's yeah it's beautiful and all encompassing. So thank you for that. Really thats So beautiful.
1: Well that's so beautiful because like what you're saying is also it shows that in relationship you're the king. Mm. You're the ruler of the relationship. Sorry, but that's just going to be a fact. <laughs> <laughs> right? <Love that. laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, once upon a time, in old-fashioned, misguided ways, times, people might have said, that's, you know, the man is supposed to be the king of the relationship. Right? But no, you are the king of a relationship. So again, you know, we can have the divine masculine and the divine feminine within us. So thank you for making that. That point clearer too, absolutely. Yeah. Mm.
0: Mm-hmm. So I love that. Now, kind of going into where we are right now and where the planets are, and um, it's really interesting. So in our new and full moon ceremonies that we have with our um, our community, we've been talking about. There's <laughs> our last new moon. Every almost every planet was in Capricorn, and everyone's like, "Oh gosh, you know, we're going through it." And you know, even now. Looking like there are so there's so Mercury, Saturn, Pluto, and Jupiter all in Capricorn, and I'd love to hear what does it mean to have all these planets in Capricorn, and what's happening right now, and how can we relate that in our lives? Right. So
1: I want to I want to revisit something you just said uh, about somebody said it in the class, and your teacher corrected it. Let's not first establish this: we and geojuts are looking at planets, stars, and houses space. There's three major things that we're looking at just to give everyone a basic foundation. We're looking at planets we consider them devas or cosmic beings with their own intelligence their own energy and they are bouncing the light of the sun into this realm and depending on the const, the composition, the chemical composition of that planet, they're bouncing a different ray of light. So we also associate the planets with different colors Mercury for instance is emerald Jupiter is yellow sapphire So the planets are key. Then the planets travel around our solar system. They travel around the sky in front of stars, which we call signs. And then they bounce the light of those stars as well, that they're traveling in front of. Mm -hmm. And then, so the stars or the constellations are interesting in terms of how well are they supporting that planet? How well are they helping that planet's power come through at that moment of your birth? And then finally, we look at space and we look at the space, the entire space around the Earth. So 360 degrees around planet Earth. And we divide it into 12 portions. There's what's come. The Eastern, if you look straight east, that's called the first house. So these 12 portions are bhavas, B H A V A. House is, again, a terrible translation. Because a bhava is a divine feeling in your heart. The feeling that I know that I am alive in a world of divinity. That feeling that you can you cannot even say it's an emotion. It's like jumping out of your skin. I am one with all that is. That's a bhava. And so the ancient ones called these bhavas. Bhavas are portions of the sky, of space. And why were they called bhavas? Because the idea is that we are consciousness come alive to participate in the creative unfolding of consciousness. And in order to do that, we're going to have to have a human body. First house represents property, the human body. Every house represents an area in the sky, in space, consider that a field. An area in the field where consciousness gets to play. And which of these 12 areas is consciousness going to play in in this lifetime? So there's only so many planets. They can't all be, not all 12 houses can have a planet in them. You know, we consider that there's nine. We consider the seven planets plus Rahu and Ketu. So nine Times 12 equals 108, unless you have the full circle. So I just think it's important that people understand that where there's a bhava, there is still something happening, even if there isn't a planet there. There's a sign, and therefore there's a planetary ruler that's going to have some say over that house. There may be an aspect to it. An aspect can give 75% of their energy or 50% of their energy, right? But we're less, but they can give a significant amount of that energy. So even if you see by looking at your chart emptiness, that doesn't necessarily mean emptiness. You need to know how to read that. And even if it is just emptiness, well, then that means there's more potentiality for you to have more free will and choice. Because what are planets? They are energy. And where there is a planet in a house, you will feel impelled to act out and to go play in that field. If you have a planet or two or three in the 10th house, for instance, it's pretty likely you're going to have a career almost all of your life. And I mean, I have somebody who's, who seems like she loves her husband. She's about to have her first child. And the way she walks and talks and acts, I just somehow thought she might take some time off after she has her baby. But she said, no way. I, I love working. I'm going to keep working. No matter how many children I have, I'm going to work, work, work. And then I looked at her chart. She has three planets in her 10th house. So there's an impulse, there's an energy that is pushing us, right, to express in that field. So think of the field. What was directly above when you were born is the 10th house, right? There's what was directly below you. There's a house there. So just divide the entire 360 degrees of the sky into 12, 30 degree pieces. And each of those pieces, it's part of the field. It's an area in the field which is like an area of life. And so, you know, a lot of times you might say, either I just never felt like going in that direction or my family wanted me to, my family wanted me to, but I just wasn't interested. Well, look at the chart. There's no energy for it, right? So I just wanted to start there, just so that people have that understanding. Because when somebody says the house is weak because there's no planet in it, it's not that it's weak. It's just that there may not be a lot of energy pushing you to go in that direction, but you yes. still can. It's your free will, as you, as you so rightly said. So, thank you for that. Yes, and on that note, so yeah, yeah, thank you for explaining. On that note, we had an interesting <laughs> yoga yoga on uh, February 11th when the moon was Amavasya, when the moon was dark. So another interesting concept. Somebody decided to translate Amavasya to mean new moon. I don't know who decided that, but it isn't a new moon. Amavasya is a dark moon, which comes before the new moon. So moon isn't actually new. Think about it. It's not really new until it's on the other side of the sun. So I just pulled up, for instance, February 11th, 2021. This is pretty sure this is here in Southern California. No, this is set to Fairfield, Iowa at 12 noon. At 12 noon, if you were in Fairfield, Iowa, central standard time, Um, the moon is at 28 degrees 43, the sun is at 29 degrees, so the moon is still approaching the sun, very close, I mean, half a degree degree away, less than, but it's only, you know, a couple hours later, when the moon would get to the other side of that 29 degrees, that the moon is actually new, does that make sense? Mm. Totally. And so the moon is new once it's, so the moon is, is waxing, right? And then it's full, and it's opposite the sun, and then it's waning as it's turning back towards the sun. And until it's in the exact degree as the sun, but if it's in the same constellation as the sun, until it's at the exact degree, moving towards it, moving towards it, it's an Amavasya moon, the dark moon. You don't see it. And it's quite a beautiful concept that it's returning to its source. Mm. The moon is returning to its source of light because the moon is only reflecting the light of the sun at any time. And then when it's dark, it's like it's time for the moon to rest. Now she gets to rest. It's also a beautiful idea to think of her as queen. Now she gets to come back to her king, to her beloved.
0: <laughs> so, oh, I love that.
1: Yeah, so later that day, February 11th, three in the afternoon, the moon moved into Aquarius. Then it was, you know, new. It was on the other side of the sun. And so, you know, it's in the time of the Yama moon that we want to go inward. We want to go back to the light of the heart, which is the sun, back to our own source. And Just meditate and just rest and just be quiet a little bit and maybe consider our lives and feel our stuff and feel our feelings and feel the depth of all that water and all that's there. It's a really good time to just come home to ourselves and love love it all, hug it all. And then in the start of the new moon, set our intentions to grow as the moon grows and waxes. So that's one thing that was happening then. It's so beautiful what was happening then. As the moon was Amavasya, still dark, because the sun in that day was so late in Capricorn, at only 29 degrees, um, that as the moon gets to the other side of the sun, by the time it's new, it's, it's pretty much already into the next sign of Aquarius. Um, but February 11th, it started February 9th. This is US, um, India and in Australia. It may have started February 10th, but it was February 9th to the 11th. We had the moon in Capricorn with the sun, with Mercury, with Venus, with Jupiter, with Saturn. Every single planet except Mars and then the two nodes, the north and south nodes, were in the north node this year, You know, is in Taurus, the south node k is in, in Scorpio. So all of the planets also were between the nodes. And that's called Kala Sarpa Yoga, this idea that all of the planets are in the body of the serpent. So it was a really intense time because it was Kala Sarpa, because Mars is strong in his own sign of Aries. Saturn is strong in his own sign of Capricorn. So all the malefics are either exalted or in dignity, and they're in ownership, right? The two nodes, Rahu is exalted in Taurus, Keita is exalted in Scorpio. So all the malefics, the planets that cause shadows or upheaval or uncertainty or aggression, were all really, really strong. And then Jupiter is not so strong. So our Greek guru is sort of, I guess he's gone to the cave to do some meditation for a little while. So not that available to us. So it was an intense time. All these planets in one one sign. And it's said that, like painting, to use your analogy, it's a bit like when you're painting and you keep dipping your brush into water, and first you dip in yellow and then pink and then blue and then purple before you know it, it's brown. So it sort of makes a mess of things. It makes which planet is... Is there? It also just makes a lot, a lot of energy, all piled up in one place. Now everybody then wants to look at where is Capricorn in your chart, because I know people have Capricorn rising, and for them it was super intense physically, socially. For me, Capricorn is my ninth house, and I'm in a Saturn return, and my Saturn's in Shravana, and most of this was happening in the nakshatra of Shravana. I mean, I was on every day. I was on Sunday in a satsang with Muji, small satsang. Later, a couple of days later, with Vanda Shiva, A couple of days later, with Krishna Das. A couple of days later, I was on private with my <laughs> own teacher. I mean, it's a very spiritual week. Yeah. And I, one day, I was like, "Oh, thank you, thank you, pile of the planets. <laughs> they were bringing me a lot of spiritual energy. So it could have been mm-hmm. a good thing for some people too. It could have been a lot of good, positive energy in a good sign. Maybe you had a lot of professional energy for greater success. And accomplishments if it's your tenth house. If it's your fourth mm-hmm. house, maybe you were doing a lot of fixer uppers and repairs around the house, right? So it just depends where it was.
0: Yeah. Thank you for explaining that, and it brings up the great point too with the differentiation between Western astrology and Vedic is that again it's always so unique to you and your chart and how your planets interact with it. Like yes, we're always feeling this collective energy on some capacity, but it, it really has to do with like how your chart interacts with it. And again, that's just really interesting because I'm going through my Saturn return too. My Saturn's in Capricorn, um, and so I I totally agree. Like it was totally a time to go inward, and I definitely amped up my meditation and there is also for me kind of like this pause i kind of want to say where it's just like settling um there wasn't that like i wasn't feeling the action of the mars and aries energy or in like a lots of movement and the intensity maybe i was perceiving it from the outside but i wasn't experiencing it within so it is it's so beautiful to kind of have that observation of like i can see how this energy is playing out and where i'm experiencing it
1: love that Oh. Um- Let's add, too, that Mercury was retrograde. <laughs> oh. <laughs> like, Mercury was retrograde. It was Kala Sarpa. You know, all the malefics strong, all the benefics not so strong. So, Angelica, can you tell me what is your uh, rising? Taurus. So is mine. So we had that in the ninth house. <laughs> and then Mars is in our twelfth house. And I wonder if that was partly why, because I'm, I had to, you just described what it felt like for me wow that is crazy <laughs> to a t you described it and i mean this is great for the listeners she and i have the same rising time we're completely different ages <laughs> i'm 58 <laughs> how old are you i am 28 <laughs> okay we're 30 years apart in age and yet our charts have these similarities and so we experience mm. that so similarly isn't that great wow it's so beautiful That's <laughs> amazing
0: <laughs> so it's the power wow. of joy to coming through and it honestly right now you look like you're in an orb and the way that the sun is just hitting you <laughs> is just so gorgeous too it's all <laughs> luminescent. <laughs> uh, yeah,
1: I know, and Georgie means light. So here we are. <laughs> We're for you exactly. light. Yeah.
0: So now moving kind of into the month of March, um it still kind of mm-hmm. feels like there's going to be a lot of so planets in Capricorn and Is there anything on the collective that you can say that people might be experiencing for this next month to come?
1: I think it's important that we recognize that Saturn is strong this whole year. So that's Mm -hmm. not going away. Saturn, and what you said, Capricorn, and just for people, Saturn rules Capricorn. We started this year with all these planets in Capricorn, and especially Saturn and Jupiter, the planets that we would look at. If, If you're looking... If every year you get back in touch with your Jyotish Master, Counselor, Advisor, each year the annual sort of update or overview that what's going to be looked at strongly in your chart is where is Saturn now, where is Jupiter now, and then where are the nodes. And so Saturn and Jupiter started this year together in Shravana Nakshatra inside of Capricorn. So that set us certainly a tone for this year. At the same time, Rahu is going to be spending most of the year in Rohini nakshatra. Shravana and Rohini, these are stars, are, nakshatras are sort of divisions within the sign. It's 27 nakshatras <coughs> versus 12 signs. <coughs> Sorry. And so the nakshatras give us a lot more detail and a lot more of a sense of the sort of, you might even say the spiritual energy that's coming through. And both Shravana and Rohini are ruled by the moon. So whereas I think 2020 was sort of the year of physical health, I think 2021 is going to be the year of mental and emotional health. Let's really focus on the moon, the mind, the manas. Let's really focus on where we're putting our mind, where we're putting our mental energy, our emotional energy, what we're allowing into our minds, what we're allowing our mind to be exposed to, I'll never forget when I first was in, in in Rishikesh. On the way there, there's this huge statue of these three monkeys, and one's holding his hands to his ears, one is holding his hands to his eyes, and one to his mouth. As an American, it's like, why is he not gonna? Why is he not allowed to speak or see? Or, you know, why doesn't he have free self-expression? But this year, I've really I feel so st- strongly that I've had that clarity of why that is, why they have that. Those statues or that idea, is that you know, we can have such a monkey mind until we choose how to limit and be discerning about what comes in through the ears, through the eyes, through the touch, through the five senses. Let's be very careful with what we allow our mind to be exposed to, because the mind is very porous, right? So I do think that that's what this—that's the overall for the year—is that Saturn will be in Capricorn all year. Jupiter does leave and go to Aquarius in April. But still, we began this year with this Capricorn idea that this is the year to build. It's the year of nose to the grindstone. Stay focused, stay committed, and just one step at a time, steady as she goes. Because Capricorn gets to the top of that mountain one slow, steady foot step at a time, right? And that that doesn't really go away. So I want to just say to people, let's not be looking for... Um, party. <laughs> this is the year of focus, hard work, commitment to the practice and to the path. But good things are coming. Jupiter is going to Aquarius where he's stronger and he goes into Aquarius April 7th. And Venus is going to be in March. A really good news is Venus is going to a place of strength. She'll be going into Pisces where she's exalted. And you know, ancient people would look at the sky and they oftentimes Venus has been called the evening star or the morning star. She can travel somewhat close to the sun, so if we see her at all, we often see her just before before sunrise and just after sunset. And it's been noted that she is brighter when she's in the constellation of Pisces. So when the Ancient Ones looked at the sky, they would say Venus is is exalted because they literally saw her as a bright, shining jewel in the sky. And then later you could say, oh, and when a person is born at a time when Venus is exalted, they have a generous heart. They have more agape. They have more humanitarian love for all and compassion. They may have a refined sensibility, an artistic eye, right? Um, and we're all going to be um, blessed with Venus's beauty and love and compassion when she moves into Pisces. March 16th, and then stays there. I haven't actually looked. Let me find she's going to stay there for a little bit. Let's find out how long she's there. So those are some things to look forward to. I I would say that starting about mid-March, we have beautiful things to look forward to. We have Venus moving into Pisces, and then a month later, less than a month later, April 7th, Jupiter moving out of Capricorn, where he is weak, and into Aquarius, Both signs ruled by Capricorn. You, I mean, ruled by Saturn. You'd think Jupiter might be weak still in Aquarius, but for some reason, Jupiter seems to do much better in Aquarius. Um, And that, of course, Aquarius is the is science, math, technology. So we'll be seeing some advances, maybe on solar energy. Looking forward to that. Some real advances in terms of tech and science and math. Yeah. So I think we have a lot to look forward to. But you know, nose to the grindstone, an ear to the heart. Because Shravana means listen. <laughs> and if Saturn's going to spend the whole year in Shravana, and this big yoga, 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 this big pile of plants happened when most of the plants were in Shravana, the theme for this year is inner ear to the heart, listening, listening to, through inner silence, listening through chanting, through mantra, through meditation, listening through listening. Wow, wouldn't that be great if we could all learn to listen a little better? <laughs> and not have so many opinions so this is the year of that this is the year of what larry king who died when all those planets were in shravana and larry king's message he said so beautifully His great great quote which i put on my instagram page was i wake every up every day and remind myself i will learn nothing through talking if i want to learn anything today i have to listen <sighs> it gives me goosebumps mm. so every day he reminds himself wow. listen yeah. So oh, I love that.
0: I have chills too. Yeah. I, I love how you said it's it's really honoring the moon this year too and our mind and our emotions and to be discerning of those but also like connecting to that, that inner silence and stillness because also to your point the moon is the queen in this divine feminine, which yeah. I know every year Kind of everyone says that you're the Divine Feminine, but I really do see us moving more into that direction and really honoring, and no matter where you are in the spirituality spectrum, whether it's Vedic astrology or you do shamanic healing, everyone is talking about this because we have just been suppressing this, and that's why I think a lot of disease is manifesting, right? So I love that Divine Feminine is coming out, and it's our turn to really focus on that so that it can be the healer of the world that we getting to that state of remembering so that we can use intuition and our own golden compass to, to lead all of this. And it's interesting. Cause again, it's connected to what we were kind of talking before we, we started recording this episode. We were talking about how in Western astrology, there is the Aquarian age. Um, and, uh, Many think that we have entered the Aquarian age that started from the conjunction last year because both those planets were in Aquarius. And then um, they thought that when all these planets were in Capricorn, that it was in Aquarius, and that's what shifted it. However, we know because we just look at the stars for guidance um, that it's actually we're still in the Piscean age. And I would love to hear from you what does it mean to be in the Piscean age? You so beautifully went over in the description of the Pisces sign when we were talking about them, but what does that mean as a collective of being in this age of the Piscean time?
1: Right. Yeah. So beautiful. I mean, Pisces is so beautiful. Venus is exalted in Pisces, right? We were talking about that. She goes into exaltation this March 16th Mm. and she stays there until April 10th when she moves into Aries. So we've got that whole month where we're all going to get to feel what is what is Pisces? You know, when Venus is in Pisces, why is she exalted there? Why? Because Pisces is intuitive. Pisces is dreamy. Pisces is creative. Mm-hmm. Pisces is kindness. Pisces is the expression of Jupiter in the feminine, watery form. And so a Piscean age is an age of compassion, of unity, of of love, of, of recognizing that we are all of us who do, do become, we are all belong to this one family of living beings, really. And we're here to take care of each other. And I often think, you know, when people were talking about with the Great Conjunction in December, that, oh, we're moving into an Aquarian age. And, you know, really sure. And somebody said to me, oh, Lord, don't tell them they're going to be so disappointed to find out. No, that's not the truth. And I thought, well, why? <laughs> what's wrong with the Pisces age? Pisces is a good age. Pisces is a beautiful sign. And have we really finished learning our lessons? Pisces wants us to learn. I don't know if we have. I think we still have a ways to go in terms of learning about wholeness and unity, oneness and compassion. Pisces is a feminine age too, and I've heard people talk about how, oh, it'll be so great to get out of the patriarchy of Pisces. I mean, Aquarius is a masculine air (laughs) sign, so if anything, that would be a more patriarchal. But of course, Aquarius is more about the brotherhood of humankind. Um, But also, you know, we're going backwards. So the first sign is Aries, the last sign, the twelfth sign is Pisces. And so we're going from the twelfth to the eleventh to the tenth. I always think if you, if you go in order from the first sign Aries to the last sign Pisces, you're really seeing the evolution of consciousness through a human life. The first thing we get is a human body. And Aries is individualistic and driven and and independent, you know. It's, it's the I that's, and that's great. That's why consciousness came alive as an Aries. It's the I that's going to drive forward. By the time we get to Libra, it's we over me. Now we're talking about relationship with others, right? And by the time we get all the way to Pisces, it's like we're just merging back into the wonders, back into the ocean of humanity, back into the ocean of consciousness itself. They have a subtle knowing of that. So if we're going from 12 to 11 to 10 back to one, right, we're not really going up. In our consciousness, we're going, you could almost say, we're going a little bit backwards. So I don't know why we're in a rush to go to the Aquarian age. I'm not saying it's bad. I mean, I love Aquarius. I love all that it represents, because that will be scientific, mathematical, technological advancements. But we're a few hundred years away from that, at least. What we are coming up on, if we look at the overall, I and mean, this is kind of, if you look at mundane astrology, big, big overall picture, we're in a Saturn- Dasha, Maha Dasha period for the world from like 1280 AD to somewhere like 2250 or 20, a couple hundred years more, we're still in the Saturn period, which you can also feel. But specifically, we're in a Saturn-Mercury-Venus right now. We're going to be going very soon, in a couple of years, we're going to go into a saturn mercury K2. K2 will also help us advance science, technology, etc., and maybe solar power and in um, all of those things, even space, like it or not, because Ketu and Rahu are out there in outer space. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, there's there's interesting things that we can we can look at. So many different things to look at what's going to happen. But generally speaking, last year was the year of the dissolution, right? Rahu, Ketu were in Ardra and Mula for most of the year. Mula is you know the dissolution of form the dissolution of old structures. So we did see in 2020, we got to break things down, the old ways that were no longer serving. So now this year we have to say, well, then what is the new way? And moon is divine mother, Venus is divine feminine. So if we're going to um, not resurrect them because they're always there, but really you could say resurrect our own awareness of those powers it's going to happen through the mind right so again it's about the mindset and where do we put our mind and how do we cultivate the mind and how do we make sure that the moon is a full moon fully reflecting the light the sun of the heart hmm.
0: so beautiful thank you for that and that and that clarity and I think that just again if something feels disempowering or gives away your power then there's got to be something that's that's out of alignment there and I think it is Mm -hmm. empowering to know that we're in the Piscean age because I love Pisces I always felt connected to it and I wondered where it was in my chart and now talking about the age of it now it makes sense why I, I do feel connected to it and I think that you're totally right. There are lessons that we haven't learned yet. Like, are we really embodying as a collective, mm-hmm. this beautiful Piscean energy that is divine and feminine and dreamy and expansive. Yeah. And yeah. it's, I feel like that mm-hmm. empowers me. Cause it's like, wow, that's how far we have to go. Like I want it. I want mm-hmm. us all to get there and how mm-hmm. beautiful that's going to be for that transformation to get us there.
1: Right. And you know, what's really, really beautiful. is that If you look at world history during the time of the, the Romans, Empire. Wow, well, we were in an Aryan age, Aries age, the Aryan. We were in an Aries age. And mm. you look at a time of Christ, Jesus, Buddha, uh, awakened beings who come to teach us how to live together as neighbors. That's the beginning of the Piscean Age. Mm. They're teaching us how to move out of uh, tribal. I mean, people were starting to live in larger city-states people were traveling and immigrating or you know different people were coming to live in these different city-states we had to learn how to live together even if we came from a different clan even if we have different color skin even if we have different religious practices right so this is the age, teaching us how to merge into the ocean to to live together as one to live together as a family and i also think of the pisces as representing healing and wholeness so we're still cultivating a lot of our healing powers and practices and tools. I think
0: we still have a ways to go
1: with our Pisces <laughs> and all that it wants yeah. to bring to us. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's it's really empowering for our community too, though, to know that healing is what is coming up on the rise. And we've been feeling that so much, and especially with Ayurveda. I mean, every year just becoming more known and, and more expansive when we're seeing different generations start to understand it and bring it to light too. And yeah, this resurgence Mm -hmm. of all this healing modalities, I think a lot of people in our community are either in their healing stage or wanting to become healers themselves. And so I hope that empowers everyone who's listening that yes, it's on the rise and yes, this work is so needed as we know, and we're meant to um, heal. It's, it's written in the stars.
1: (laughs) Right. We're meant to be whole. Right. And I think that's what healing is. It's mending. Together are mending us back to our wholeness, you could say, restoring our innate wholeness. Yeah, I do think that that's what healing is. Mm -hmm. Healing, of course, comes from the word wheel, and wheel is the same root as whole as well as wealth. Mm -hmm. So to heal is to have all the parts of the wheel, right, functioning so that we can just roll along with ease and grace. I
0: love that. You have the best analogies and the best references. It comes together.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it's beautiful. You said so many people are learning Ayurveda and Jyotish, and that's many ways because of people like yourselves. You guys are doing a beautiful job of of sharing Ayurveda in ways that are accurate and playful, and that's wonderful. I love seeing that. And then you know the other thing is that with K2 now in Scorpio, K2 why is K2 considered exalted in Scorpio? Because K2 is. Originally, he's the headless dragon, right? He can't see because he has no head. So originally, he's just blindness. He's all the things that we do that are sort of blind. The things, our default behaviors, our default patterns, those things that we do, and we say, "Oh, why do I keep doing this? Making the same mistake, having the same relationship, attracting the same, etc." Right? That's usually K two. K two could be karma. K two could be ancestral patterns. But at a certain point, K two says enough. I'm going to leave behind this material world and I'm going to go to the cave and I'm going to sit and meditate. He turns his awareness inward and he now is able to see with the eyes of the heart. So he turns to an inner vision. And in that sense, Ketu is a yoga karaka or moksha karaka. He indicates the path of self-realization. And Scorpio is transformation. Why is the moon said to be debilitated in Scorpio? Because we are here for transformation. And again, if you're the princess or the prince, the king's like, no, no, no. I want you to rule a kingdom. I don't need you to be busy doing transformation all the time. But when we're born with moon and and Scorpio, we are always being given these beautiful opportunities for transformation. (laughs) Which is why we need our own space. We need our own quiet time because we're processing a lot. But just to go back to K2 and Scorpio, therefore, means this is a time where many, many people are being drawn to transformative practices. Many, many people now are being awakened to yoga, Ayurveda, Jyotish. They don't just want to learn how to calm the mind. They really want to learn practices of deep transformation. And we're seeing that a lot in our our world today. I feel that's just accelerated. Already in the past couple of months, I feel this. And of course, it could be the algorithm, but I feel like in social media, you know, every month there's exponentially exponential growth in terms of how many people are interested in ayurveda how many people are interested in studying actually learning to become a jyotish practitioner you know when i started oh boy you could count them on on one or two hands how many people in america were doing jyotish it's really really small and really really esoteric and now it's really becoming very um well known it's becoming known about let's say
0: yeah that's beautiful and
1: it's
0: beautiful it's 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 cool to see that even that algorithm follows a pattern too you know that that algorithm is still a part of the universe and the the esoteric in a certain way too so i i do agree i think it, it is all connected with that so that's so empowering for our community and even more empowering to know that they can use these Elements, of course, to balance these energies that no one is ever doomed in their chart or where the planet disposition is. And it's also, if you ever want to strengthen the planet, like you mentioned, it's beautifully to bring in the chanting um, and, and the meditation and these other practices. And something that I highly recommend um, is just having a consultation um, with a Vedic astrologer Um as Laura Plum, who is so experienced and just really embodies this wisdom so that you can really understand the way that your chart plays and understand uniquely who you are, just to have more compassion and and wholeness for it. So I would love for you to share how you can, um, or how our listeners can learn from your wisdom and be able to start embodying this wisdom.
1: (laughs) Thank you. You know, I do actually also recommend um, having your chart interpreted by a professional somebody who's been done it doing this a long time so that you know because if we try to go to dr google or professor google oftentimes we're, we're being misled we're looking at the wrong things or we're looking at the right thing but it's telling it to you in a way that's really not probably correct again you might have a debilitated planet where the debilitation has been cancelled jupiter is a great example if you have jupiter and capricorn in your chart you may go to Dr. Google or Professor Google, and Professor Google says, sorry, you're never gonna have any abundance, you're going to be very, you know, miserable your whole life. <laughs> That's not a very nice thing to hear, and it's not true. It's just not true. The planets can the planets represent perception. So a person who has Jupiter and Capricorn might perceive themselves to not be lucky. And there are ways to work on that. You know, that perception can be changed. The other thing is that very, very often. Jupiter especially is Nichibonga. Nichibanga meaning the debil- debilitation is canceled. And when debilitation is canceled, it often means that planet can be stronger than even if it were exalted, right? But it's about learning about it. It's about embracing it. So a Jupiter, a person with Jupiter and Capricorn can be somebody who's, who goes on to teach people about expanding their wealth or how to work with money or may even go on to be a kind of a guide for others. So yeah, don't don't look it up for yourself because it's so misleading. Secondly, I like to have different people read because we all interpret different ways. We only have so much time with a person. And I promise you, a whole week would not be enough to talk about all the things that are going on in your chart. So, you know, each time I've done that, I've, I've loved having readings from different masters and hearing the different things they say. And each time I learn so much. So it also is helpful. But if you want to, you can go to lauraplum.com. And there's a lot of resources there on my website to learn more, to listen more. And if you wanted to, to book a, book a session.
0: Yeah. Mm, thank you. And your Instagram also has so much knowledge and wisdom that you share too. Um, and so you can follow Laura Plum on her Instagram. We'll have it linked in our, on our show notes. And this is just so Magical and such a beautiful conversation with a friend, you know. And I am so grateful, um, and I'm so honored for you to share with our community. So thank you, thank you for this timeless wisdom.
1: You know, it's a great honor, and I'm really honored and delighted. I feel privileged that you would ask me. But I also want to share with you this: at 58, I feel like I'm in my legacy years. I want to help these Vedic sciences expand and grow, and have let everybody have access to them. So when I see people like you at 28, already there doing so much beautiful work to expand the wisdom, to share the Vidya, I truly I mean it when I say I am uh, inspired by you and and really respect and honor and, and admire what you're doing. So thank you for being part of the Vidya, for being part of the river that is fertilizing the word, world with this divine wisdom. Oh,
0: yeah. my goodness. Mm-hmm. I can't follow up to that. I'm just going to feel that and... Let you know that is felt so deeply and so genuinely. Thank you. All right, everyone. Well, thank you so much for listening. Um, So beautiful to have you all here. Um, And we're here to continue answering your questions. So this is a continued conversation. And let us know the questions that you have. Um, And that is all. We will see you next time. Bye. If you've been loving these conversations, which we know you have, we have a special invitation for you to join us in our Ayurvedic mystic community, also known as the Lightworker Society. We created this community because on the spiritual path, sometimes it can be really freaking lonely and also really difficult to know what to do and to know which tools to use because there are so many out there. So This community is about truly embodying these practices and creating real soul level connections with the other. Beautiful and badass human beings in this crew. So, if this sounds like your jam, you can sign up at soulfulveda.com/slash lightworker society, and we will see you there.